All right, last week, you remember what we studied about leaders being faithful and how important it is that they give us a great example of our Christian lives. And now that the physical needs of the Jewish people had been met, they restored the temple, they restored the wall, they are now protected from the outside, uh, people that would attack them. And so now Nehemiah wants to focus in on their spiritual well-being. And isn't that a great example? Isn't that what Jesus told us to do? is to make sure that physical needs are first met, and then you can present the gospel. So it's kind of the same concept here. So before we get into God's word, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. And as we discuss today how important your word is in our lives, Lord, would you just illuminate it for us so that we can truly understand the importance of your word in each of our lives and how we must not neglect it. And so we ask that you you be with us this morning. Bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1 says, in October, when the Israelites had settled in their town, so they're all comfy, it's like, yay, all the work is done. It says, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. So you remember where the water gate is. And it's not the conspiracy in Washington, it's the water (laughs) gate. Okay, so it's right here. (laughs) So... Anyway, why the water gate? Well, there's always a reason for every detail in the Bible, and that's what I just love about it. It's like one big giant picture that you can tell had one author. So in God's word, water for washing is a picture of the word of God washing us. When we received Christ, you know, it's that, that washing of the word. Jesus said in John fifteen three that when we listen to his words or the word of God, because he is the word, we, we receive that cleansing. And then there is the drinking of the water, which represents the spirit of God working in our lives, uh, changing and molding us into the image of Christ. You remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? She says, if you drink of this water, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water I give you, you will never thirst. Of course, he's not talking about physical water. He was talking about the spirit of God living inside her. So she will never thirst again. She will never go back to that life that she had before. And so when we apply that living water of the word to our lives, then the spirit begins to do that amazing work in our lives. That's the washing of the spirit. Then verse 1 continues on. They ask Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. Now, this is the same Ezra from the book of Ezra. His job was to rebuild the temple. And we have mentioned him a couple times now. And so 12 years has passed, and he is now just a priest amongst the people. Verse 2 says, So on October 8, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly. So in the Jewish calendar, this is the seventh month which is their new year. Remember, their calendar is completely different from ours. And it's a holiday called the Feast of Trumpets. And remember when I brought that, that ram's horn in, that's the, 
they, they blow that horn to signify that this is now, that the Feast of Trumpets has begun. And so they're kind of uh, combining the reading of the word, the celebration of the completion of the wall and everything into their Feast of Trumpets. So this is like a holiday. And so now the book of the law is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you've ever read them, after Exodus, it gets pretty boring, doesn't it? It's a lot of rules and regulations and stuff. So keep that in mind as we read this. It's like, wow, this, this is hard stuff to, to remember, to uh, absorb and everything. So these books, though, are the foundation of the Jewish faith. It's known as the Torah. And then verse 2 continues, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. Now, this is very wise on Nehemiah's part. That way, you know, everybody hears it all at the same time. Uh, Most children would not understand these books, and they would only become disruptions, kind of like, you know, little kids. uh, You know, you see them in church. You know, sometimes, you know, the mom, I, I remember this very distinctly, trying to do the exact same thing. You bring out everything in your purse. You have it scattered everywhere, trying to get the kid to be occupied while you're trying to listen to the pastor. Kind of the same thing. So, anyway, of course, nobody was excluded. Nobody uh, was uh, unable to listen to the word. And interesting thing to note is that the men and the women were together. This didn't happen. This wasn't supposed to happen. So everyone is together. Then verse 3, he says, he faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who would understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. So the picture here is Ezra stood with his back to the water gate and faced the people and began reading from the Torah. And the people listened. They're going, wow, we've never heard this stuff before. But 1 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So they truly listen, just like what this New Testament verse tells us to do. We must listen to the word of God. But look at the order of this. First, they received the word of God. They read it. Second, they welcome it. That's what this Thessalonian verse tells us. You welcome it. You go, I need this. I want this. Third, they saw it as truth. They saw that this was needed in their own lives because it is truth. And then fourth, they allowed the the word to actually work in their lives. It doesn't do us any good if we read the Bible all day and never apply it to our lives. It doesn't do us any good. God says, read it and apply it. It is in that that it has that life-changing effect. And so this is very similar to what was going on to the Jewish people as Ezra read the word of God. 
Then verse 4 tells us, Ezra, the scribe, stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. So we see our first stage and pulpit. I'm actually standing on a, a little riser in behind the pulpit because I'm too short. And so, so it's kind of the same thing. You know, he stood so that people could hear him. Remember, they didn't have a PA system or anything like that. And so he stood and he had to probably almost yell. But I'm sure God made it so that the people could hear because he just does those kind of things. So anyway, the, the large crowd truly needed to hear every word that Ezra was reading from the book of the Torah. And Ezra wasn't just a scribe. He was also a Levitical priest, it's a man of God whose job it was to teach the people. And then he had people standing up there with him, uh, leaders in the community. And you know me, I'm going to destroy these words, but it says, to, uh, these names, to his right stood Mathatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah, and to his left stood Padiah, Mishael, Malachi, I think it's Malachiah, Hashem, oh my goodness, this one's really bad, Hashbadadana, <laughs> Zechariah, and Meshulam. Wow. See, if you're, if you're pregnant, these are some great names to have. Um, anyway, there were, these were men of good standing, and these are none of those bad guys that we had been listening to. Uh, about have we I mean you know the the Tobias and you know the the bad priest all these guys they have they finally got rid of those guys they locked the doors they weren't allowed to come into the city and so these were people of good standing and verse 5 says Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people when they saw him open the book they all rose to their feet I love that they all rose to their feet. They were giving honor to the word of God. They knew that they would not be hearing just a man speak or read from a book. They were hearing the word of God. And they remained standing while the book was read and explained. So essentially, they were kind of having a Bible study, a very long Bible study. So Ezra started his reading uh, and teaching early in the morning and continued through the afternoon, which means the congregation stood and listened for five to six hours. Wow. Um, I've uh, talked to missionaries like in uh, Sudan. We had a, a guy that we knew that just was fascinated that the Sudanese people could have a Bible study for like all day. On Sunday, you would go and they would congregate and somebody would read the word of God and they would just turn it into this huge celebration of reading God's word and praising him and it would go on all day. Now, we complain and we start looking at our watch when Jeff goes long. You know, it's like, isn't that sad? I mean, we all do it. Come on, let's admit it, ladies. But, you know, that's just, you know, that's just, I have no explanation, but, you know, maybe it's a heart thing. I don't know. But they just cherish the word of God so much that they would stand and listen to this for six hours. That's amazing to me. Then Ezra, verse 6 Praise the Lord, 
the great God and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands and they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What a beautiful scene that is, isn't it? The people truly were worshiping God. And then the Levites, <clears throat> Jeshua, Abana, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akob, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, uh, Masiah, Kelta, Azara, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleiah. I'm sure that's nothing even close to what they were, but you guys get the drift. Then instructed the people in the law which everyone remained while, excuse me, everyone remained in their places. So the Levites could actually be called pastors, or in this case, they were assisting pastors to Ezra. And after all that reading and standing, the people stuck around to hear the meaning of the words. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Now, their job was to teach the people so that they could understand exactly what the word of God means and how to apply it to their lives, very similar to what a pastor does today. But it was so much more than that. What was happening here is the Torah was so old that the language no doubt changed drastically over the thousand years since it was originally written. Remember, this is the law of Moses. So Moses wrote this, and now they're reading it a thousand years later. Uh, to give you an example, 19, excuse me, 1382, John Wycliffe translated a Bible into English, the first English Bible. And here is a very popular verse. All right, I'm going to let you all read it. All right, anybody picking up on it? I'm not going to tell you. Isn't that amazing? I know, I'm going, oh, why isn't this capitalized? All right. You want to know what it says? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Isn't that amazing? So you could see how things could change. And so that is why the Levitical priests were needed to explain to the people what it said. And oftentimes this gets misunderstood in saying, you know, well, you know, we're going to read from the Latin Bible. We'll tell you what it says. See, God wants you to read the word on your own. That's why he makes it so simple. So it's good that we have the translations. We have all different kinds of translations. Some of them good. Some of them are bad. But most of them are pretty decent. You know, look at the difference between the King James Version and the New King James Version. You know, you take out all the these and thous and stuff, and it goes, oh, yeah, you know what? That is a lot easier to understand. Or better yet, if you like the New Living Translation, which is what I'm teaching out of today, it makes it even easier to understand. See, God wants you to understand his words. And so in this case, they only had that old translation, so they used the Levitical priests to actually explain. This is what this means in modern terms. Continuing on, verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, so they made him governor now, Ezra the priest and scribes and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, 
Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God, for the people had all been weeping as they listened listen to the words of the law. So what had happened is as they were learning what the Bible said, they began to go, oh my goodness, we have sinned against God. And so they were weeping and crying, saying, you know, how could we have done this? Because they had been making a lot of mistakes. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how they were marrying outside of the Jewish faith and that kind of thing. That is how this happened. They hadn't had a temple. They hadn't had any teaching. And so now it's being read to them and they're going, oh my goodness, we have done a terrible thing. So when Ezra saw this, he goes, you know what? It's a good thing that you have conviction because conviction helps us to change. That is the purpose of the word, you know, to guide and direct us, to and direct us. But it's also important to note that it isn't the law that can save us. You know, when you're reading the law and you're seeing all these rules and regulations and stuff, you know, and this is something that the Jewish people have always had wrong. It's like, okay, I'm right with God if I follow the law. See, the law is only there to point you to God and your need for a savior. That's why it's there. But Nehemiah continued on in verse 10 says, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. So he's saying it's a good thing to grieve because of our sin, but then we must get up and begin our new life. In fact, it looks like Nehemiah is telling them to have a party. Let's celebrate and make sure you invite the less fortunate I love that. Then he continues on. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Why is this sacred? I love that. Because the people recognized their sin. And they recognized their need to change. And Nehemiah is now telling them to celebrate because those chains of sin are being broken off. As their people are repenting and they're getting their lives right with the Lord, they're, they're becoming free again. And this freedom is from the Lord. And that's why the Lord is their strength. Because he's the one that broke all those chains. Then verse 11 tells us, And the Levites, too, quieted the people, telling them, Hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So we see uh, the Levite priest assisting Nehemiah and Ezra, you know, trying to get the people to, you know what? Yes, there is a time for mourning. Yes, you grieve when you have sinned against God. But once you repent of it, then just relish in the peace that you have with God. That is so important. See, the enemy wants to keep you in depression and uh, con- condemnation because of your sin. Don't let him do that. This is what the Lord is telling us to do. Once you've been called on your sin, you repented of your sin, you are now free. Enjoy the freedom and the peace that God has given you. Verse 12. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's word and understood them. And this is my favorite section of today's scripture. Why? Because God is telling them that once we have repented of our sin, he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to enjoy the fruits of what he has done. He took that, that 
that sin upon himself as a sacrifice. And so let's rejoice that he has done this for us. See, the enemy wants to keep you down, depressed, in condemnation. He wants to tell you that, oh, you're just going to sin again. So, you know, why even bother trying not to sin? See, that's what the enemy tells us, isn't it? I've heard it myself. He does do that because he wants to keep you down. He wants, he's like that, that you know, person that wants to always squish you down and, and demean you. But God is saying, no, no, I want you to celebrate. Or worse yet, think that you need to do good deeds in order to make up for your bad deeds. Don't we see that often? Well, you know, I sinned this week, so I guess I'm going to go teach Sunday school. You know, no, 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 that's not what he wants. You know, uh, that's just the opposite. What does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift to God, not of works, lest any man should boast or woman should boast. So what God is telling us here is to rejoice that our sin has been forgiven and not to dwell on the past. Then verse 13. On October 9th, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and Levites, met with Ezra, the scribe, to go over the law in greater detail. So they go, okay, you know, let's sit down and let's really go into this and find out what God expects us. And then it says in verse 14, as they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. So that's kind of weird, isn't it? You're supposed to live in a shelter even though you have nice homes. Why would God do this? It's an interesting command, isn't it? Verse 15 He had said that a proclamation should be made throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, telling the people to go to the hills to get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They were to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival as prescribed by the law. So the people went out and cut branches and used them to build shelters on the roofs of their houses in their courtyards in the courtyards of God's temple, or in the squares just inside the water gate and the Ephraim gate. So everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Isn't that interesting? So basically, they had their homes, but they were camping out in their front and backyards or on their roofs. And I go, wow, this is fascinating. I love this festival because it's kind of like camping. I mean, did you ever do that as a kid, you know, go camping in your backyard? You know, it's like, oh, this is exciting. You know, I think a lot of us have done that. Uh, I loved camping. So this is like, wow, this is really, really fun. And then you get to make your shelter. You're gathering, you know, sticks and palm fronds and all sorts of things to make your shelter to live in. See, but God wanted them to remember something. What was it? Leviticus twenty three forty three. Now to set the scene, we have the, the people have just been rescued from captivity in Egypt. For forty years they lived like this. So he says, This will remind each new generation of the Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
He wanted them to remember what previous generations had gone through, what God had done for them previously, how God was faithful to them in the past. They're supposed to remember this. Each of their feasts, each of their festivals have a purpose in the Jewish faith. And they all have to do with remembering what God has done. Very similar to what we do when we take communion. What is it? To remember what Christ has done for us, right? Same thing. So God is saying, I want you to do this. I want you to live in shelters during this Feast of Trumpets. And they even call it the Feast of Shelters. In some, uh, it, today, the Jewish people would call it Sukkot. And it's to remember what God had done when he rescued them from the Israelites. Excuse me, from the Egyptians. So, today, the Jewish people, I love this. They still celebrate this. They build these in their houses. Isn't this fascinating? That's one of my favorites. This is on top of a roof. Kind of gives you an idea what they do. This one's in New York City, just out there on the walkway. And the, the Jewish quarters of New York City. Here they build them on the outside on their little decks. Isn't that fascinating? You'll see the, still see this in New York. If you go to the Jewish Quarter, I'm told. I've never seen it myself. But you will see these little shelters everywhere during this time. I love it. So verse 18 then tells us, Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each of the seven days of this festival, this Feast of Trumpets, this Feast of uh, uh, Shelters or Sukkot. Then on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly as was required by the law. So this was a celebration of reading the Bible every single day. And on the eighth day, the people were to be very solemn. Why is that? That was the day that they had to make sin sacrifices. And if you've ever heard it in detail what happens, that means you bring uh, lambs and they're, they're slaughtered. It's a very bloody affair. But it's so that the people understand that this is serious. Blood has to be shed for your sins. And it was a preparation for Jesus, the Messiah. That's what that example was. And so on that eighth day, they had to bring their, their, <coughs> excuse me, their lambs or their doves or their bulls, all these things to sacrifice for the sin of the people. And so it was a very solemn occasion. So what is our lesson for today? Oh my goodness, it's how important the word of God is to each one of our lives. See, the people had no idea they were displeasing God. No idea. Remember, we have the Holy Spirit to convict. The Holy Spirit hasn't come on the scene yet. The Holy Spirit comes after Jesus comes. And then when he leaves, he leaves the Holy Spirit with us to guide, direct, convict, right? They didn't have that. They had to depend on the word of God to convict for sin. They only had the Torah. And now we have the Holy Spirit. We have the whole Old Testament and the New Testaments. So there's no excuse for us, ladies. I mean, we've got so much more than these folks did. You know, sometimes I think of the Jewish people and say, oh, they're always blowing it over and over again, you know, and I kind of have a bad attitude towards them. And then the Lord reminds me, yeah, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. 
They didn't have an Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. Oh, yeah, that's right, Lord. Sorry about that. You know, and there's no excuse. Then I go, oh, man, there's no excuse for me because I've got every advantage here at my fingertips. But God's word is so important. It's said that there is no instruction manual for life. I don't believe that a bit. I disagree. The Bible is the only instruction we need for life. Amen? So let's look at what the word says about itself. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting through between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Wow, look at that. It's alive. It's, a, it's powerful. It exposes sin. Why is this necessary? Alive means that it will always pertain to where we're at in history. It never gets old. I remember years ago, I used to think, ah, you know what? The Bible's kind of an old-fashioned notion. I mean, after all, it was written 2,000 years ago. How can it pertain to today? Well, that's what this says, is that it's alive. It never gets old. It always pertains to today. Amen? It never becomes outdated or irrelevant. Now, because it is God's word, it is more powerful than anything else on earth because it is truth. It exposes sin, it convicts, and that conviction turns into repentance. Then that repentance turns to change in our lives. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to continue to change us into the image of Christ. Then 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Amen to that. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So all scripture is inspired by God. And because God cannot lie, it is always going to be truth. Therefore, everything that the word teaches us is only truth. But it corrects us, which we do need a lot. Uh, Whenever we're not sure, God's word tells us what is right and pleasing to him. That's all found in the word of God. It also equips us. Now, I just got back from Colorado, and it was really, really cold there. On Thursday, it was minus 5. I know. And it did warm up to 27, you know, just saying. But, you know, it was really, really cold. So when we go out, you know, if we don't have the right equipment, like I had on, uh, you know, I don't know how many layers. I, I had a down jacket with a ski jacket on top of that. I had, uh, I had thermals on with ski pants over that. I had Sorrells on with wool socks, you know, a beanie. I had my uh, down jacket hood on top of that. And then I had my ski jacket hood on top of that. I mean, and then, of course, gloves, everything. I was equipped for the cold, wasn't I? Thankfully, I was equipped for the cold. See, God's word equips us for the climate that we are going to be in. And so if we don't take advantage of what the word is giving us, then we won't be equipped for what comes our way, whatever comes our way. Remember, God knows exactly what's going to go on in your life. He can prepare your heart for the season that you're going to go into. That is his promise. He will equip us. And the way we are equipped is through his word. 
Psalms 119.105 tells us, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Nobody likes stumbling in the dark. If you've raised kids with Legos, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I can't tell you how many Legos I have stepped on in the middle of the night. They are so painful, you know. (laughs) They really are. So we need to have our path illuminated so that we don't stumble or we don't step on something we don't want to step on. This is one of the promises that we have. The word of God will illuminate everything for us. He will teach us. He will instruct us. See, if you saw an obstacle in your Christian walk, God will, through his word, shine light on it so that you can miss it. For example, let's just say you're reading your Bible and you're a brand new Christian and you come upon Mark 7, 20 through 23, where Jesus says, and then he added, is it what comes from inside that defiles you? For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Now, let's say you're a brand new Christian, and you used to do a majority of these things. You're going, oh my goodness, God says, I shouldn't do that. Then I better not do that. You see how it illuminates? Suddenly it's brought to light that these are things that God doesn't like because they will destroy you. They will defile you. That is what the word of God does for us, isn't it? And if we don't have that uh, instruction, then we may stumble and fall into one of these areas. And there's a whole, whole lot more of things we can stumble and fall into, and they're all in the Word of God. And so if we're not studying it, if we're not reading the Word of God and seeing that, oh, this is displeasing to God, I shouldn't do that, then you may fall into one of these But to me, the most important thing about the Word of God is one of my favorites found in John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why do I think this is so important? It's... God, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Word, they are all interconnected. They are all the same. They are linked together. They're like the full package. You can't have one without the other. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Word and his promises to us. Without his promises being fulfilled, we have nothing. The most important promise, of course, is that Jesus came and died for us. That was promised. And wrapping up, in Nehemiah's time, God's word showed the Jewish people that they needed what they needed to correct in order to get right with their creator. Likewise, God's word shows us how to get right with our creator. However, if we don't know what is in God's word, then we won't have that instruction, will we? That's why it is so important. We will not be equipped for what life brings us. All the trials, all the heartaches, all the temptations, we will not be equipped for them if we do not read his word, if we do not study his word. 
So my admonition to you would be not to neglect that, not to neglect reading the word of God, studying the word of God. It is the most important thing that God can use to instruct us because we desperately need his instruction, don't we? Without his instruction, we are ill-equipped for the fight, ill-equipped for the journey, ill-equipped for the path that he has laid before us. So make sure you don't neglect the word of God. We need God's word every single day, even if it's just a verse. Don't skip your spiritual meals. We don't like to skip one physical meal, do we? But, and yet we will skip our, our spiritual meal every day. Sometimes we just get lazy. I do the same thing. And I will leave you with this. Isaiah 55, 8 through 12. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I promise and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and that all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Why would we deny ourselves this? This is a wonderful, wonderful promise that God has given us. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you have given us your word. And it's so important in our lives, and yet so many times we do neglect it. Lord, convict us of this so that we don't so that we're equipped for whatever comes our way so that we're not left stumbling in the dark we just thank you lord that you have uh, been so patient with us and through these uh, experiences that we've all gone through lord of of neglect neglecting your word and and those kind of things lord just forgive us for that lord we just love you so much and we need your word And as we break up into our small groups and we discuss this even more, would you just make your word come alive? Would your word convict? Would your word change our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.